Pints with Jack, Season 2, Episode 22. After Hours with Lewis Marcos. Hello, and welcome to Pints with Jack. Last week, Matt and I discussed the final chapter of The Great Divorce, and next week the two of us are going to offer a retrospective of this entire season. But today is an After Hours episode with Professor Lewis Marcos. So back in the early part of 2018, our San Diego C.S. Lewis reading group was working through The Four Loves. And in an attempt to sound intelligent during our discussions, I searched YouTube for lectures about the book. And it was then that I encountered a force of nature in a tuxedo. It was a lecture given by today's guest at Houston Baptist University. It was, oh, it was a phenomenal lecture, and on the strength of that, I bought an audio lecture series on Lewis, which he had produced. And I'm going to include links to all of these things in the show notes. I then reached out to him and asked for some constructive criticism about our podcast, and he gave some really helpful feedback. So, who is this man? He is the professor in English at Houston Baptist University, where he holds the Robert H. Ray Chair in Humanities. He is an authority on C.S. Lewis and has written an obscene number of books on Lewis, Tolkien, and ancient literature. So, Dr. Lewis Marcos, welcome to Pints with Jack. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you for coming and uh, talking to us. I always like to kick off episodes with a quote of the week. And so, since we're going to be talking about hell and heaven, I thought the last battle would be a, a good choice. At the very end of the Chronicles of Narnia, Jewel the Unicorn says... I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. Come further up and further in. And with that, cheers. I'm drinking a little bit of uh, Lagavulin 16 year at the moment. So I gave you a very inadequate introduction. So would you mind just telling us a little bit more about yourself and in particular, the role that Lewis has played in your life. Well, great. Well, my name is Lou Marcos, and it's spelled K-O-S, which will let you know that I'm Greek. Actually, all four of my grandparents were born in Greece, came here about 1930. And I've got a sort of interesting Christian story. I grew up and came to know Christ in the Greek Orthodox Church, and later God moved me into the evangelical world. But when I was growing up and going through Sunday school, um, at the end of each year, we would usually get some kind of a gift. And it was usually a book about, you know, Greece or about the church or history or something. But our priest actually gave us copies of Mere Christianity and Screwtape Letters. And so very early on, when I was a teenager, I read those books early on, and they really, they kind of shaped the way I looked at faith and looked at Christ and even looked at literature since I went on to become an English professor. Uh, and now, I'm 55 years old, so when I was going to college, you know, graduate, undergraduate school, nobody took classes on C.S. Lewis. So nobody studied C.S. Lewis back then. But I read, I read the Chronicles of Narnia as a kid, didn't even know they were partly Christian allegories, had to find that when I came back to them again. And I grew up with him, and, but again, I, I was never able to study him. I just read him on my own. And then I got connected with the teaching company, the, the courses that you mentioned, and they brought me out to do a lecture series on literary theory called Plato to Postmodernism. And it really went well. They really liked the way it went. So after I was done, they asked me, well, what else would you like to do a series on? 
And I said, well, what about the Iliad or the Odyssey? Done. What about the Aeneid or Dante? Done. What about Greek mythology? Done. What about Greek tragedy? Done. I, I finally said, well, I've always liked C.S. Lewis. And they said, do it. This is 2000, about the year 2000. Still, C.S. Lewis is not everywhere yet. And what that did is, once I agreed to doing that, I went back and reread all of Lewis's books and not only took notes, but sort of took cross notes. And that's really the way you learn something. It was coming out of the crucible of preparing to make that 12 lecture series that I was able to read Lewis en masse and see all the connections because Lewis is one of these people that, you know, every book has everything about Lewis in it. Uh, and so it was, it was really that process of doing that. Uh, and then the lecture series came out and then I did a cover article for Christian Aid Today on that. And that led to my first book, Lewis Agonistes with Brahman and Holman. And then I kind of, from there it's moved on, but Lewis has always been there at some part of, of my life, I, I was a part of a group called InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, which is a Christian group, uh, and they all loved C.S. Lewis. He was their patron saint, so I ended up reading and doing all of those things. And then again, I mean, you ask almost any, especially evangelical today, who their role model is. Half of them will say C.S. Lewis, but I'm lucky because C.S. Lewis is a double role model for me because he was also an English professor. And so I've learned from every area of Lewis, not just the apologetics, the fiction, uh, the way Lewis had the courage to be a generalist in an age of specialists, right? And most of your listeners probably know that Lewis was never given a professorship at, at, at Oxford. And part of the reason for that was, yes, he was outspoken about his faith, but it was more than that. Lewis dared to write popular books while he was at Oxford, and they dinged him for that as much as for being open about his faith. Even Tolkien gave him a hard time for writing apologetics. Leave that to the priest, Jack, he would say. <laughs> um, so Lewis actually gave me the courage as a professor to be a general. I mean, my specialty is 19th century romantic and Victorian poetry uh, and prose. But Lewis helped me to expand and expand and expand and realize that, you know, a real humanities professor needs to be a Renaissance man. And so Lewis kind of freed my mind in lots of different ways. And I just keep coming back to him again and again. That's really great. <laughs> I recently interviewed Joseph Pierce and I was... Oh, I love him. We're good friends. Oh, he's fantastic. Uh, but I was saying how I was surprised that Lewis didn't seem to dig too deeply into the early church fathers definitely into Augustine. And uh, Joseph said something along the lines of, he cared about literature, and that was the lens through which he pretty much viewed everything. So his exposure to Augustine was first and foremost because Augustine wrote great literature. That is true. And, you know, just give you a little example of serendipity here. You know, Lewis had originally studied, and he was going to be a philosophy professor. He, you know, he'd, got, he'd gone through the philosophy and, you know, got first in philosophy. But then he couldn't get a job, and so he had to go back and do literature. And that was, you know, God knowing what he was going to do, because Lewis is not a philosopher who loves literature. He's a, liter you know, a literature professor who loves philosophy. And he would have been a different person if he saw everything through the lens of philosophy and theology. Instead, Joseph is right. He saw everything through the lens of literature. And, you know, that's why maybe his favorite of the sort of fathers, if you will, is actually Boethius, who mm -hmm. wrote Consolation of Philosophy. He quotes him almost as much as Augustine. Uh, and, and again, that, that's the way he perceives things, and that's the way I perceive things, too. So that gives me another kinship 
with Lewis that that we find in literature a great truth. I mean, that's kind of what what um, Aristotle says in his famous Poetics that what you have in the best literature is the particular from history and the general from philosophy, but brought together in this perfect package that you know gives us what Coleridge liked to call a concrete universal. And I think that's one of the reasons Lewis. I mean, look, I love Saint Augustine. I read him all the time. But you know, you read him and then you forget him. You know, when you, you know, and you have to read it again. But Lewis, you read it once and you never forget it. His images are so concrete, so real, so so tangible that it just stays in your mind, and and it, it's wonderful. And you don't have to be a, a you know a college professor. You know, you can be you know an engineer, or a businessman, a doctor, or whatever. They they pick up Lewis, they read it, and it, and it sticks. There's just something so direct and real and palpable about his writing that makes it stay in the mind and, and of course, in the spirit. Well, speaking about great literature, the book that we're going to be discussing today is your book, Heaven and Hell, Visions of the Afterlife in the Western Poetic Tradition. And I asked if we could speak about this book because you devote an entire chapter to the book that we've been studying in this season of Pints with Jack, The Great Divorce. And you also have an in-depth discussion concerning The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, the work by William Blake, to which Lewis was responding. So before we go too far, what was your motivation for writing this book? And in particular, why did you spend so much time talking about the pagan conceptions of the afterlife? Because, you know, you're a Christian. Right. In the words of the early church writer Tertullian, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? Ah, you're, you're touching on my true passion. The Heaven and Hell book is kind of an unofficial sequel to a book I published a few years earlier called From Achilles to Christ, Why Christians Should Read the Pagan Classics. And that book takes up the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, and the Greek tragedies. And my argument is that I'm very much deeply in this movement called the classical Christian movement. Speak for them all over the place. My kids both work for classical schools. And and I believe that, well, anybody that believes we should read the pagan classics, our sort of heart story is Paul speaking at the Areopagus in Acts chapter 17. You remember, he's in Athens, right? This is his second missionary journey. The Spirit has sent him away from Asia, deep into Europe. He's in there. He's in the Agora, the marketplace, and he sees idols everywhere, right? And then he sees an idol, a temple that says, to an unknown God. And then, because Paul read my book, From Achilles to Christ, he knew what to do. <laughs> and so he called for the meeting of the Areopagus. Those were the sort of Stoic and Epicurean philosophers of the day. They would listen to new ideas, decide whether to let them in. And so he wanted to speak to them. And he began by saying, men of Athens, which is the way Socrates always began his speeches. He said, men of Athens, I see that in all ways you are a religious people, for you have, he didn't say idols, you have temples to every god. He wants to make a connection. I see you even have a temple to an unknown god. And then Paul speaks the words that I believe the entire Greco-Roman world was waiting to hear. He said, now therefore, what you worship in ignorance, I will proclaim to you as known. And then he goes on to tell him that the Lord God does not live in temples built by human hands, but out of one man he created all nations of men. He set their times and their places so that they may reach after him and grope after him, though he is not far from any of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As your own poets, your own pagan poets have said, we are his offspring. Now, a lot of people don't realize that Paul is actually quoting two different pagan poets. One was named Epimenides, and he said, 
in him we live and move and have our being. And another one was named Aratus, and he said, we are his offspring. In both of the original poems, the he is Zeus. And yet Paul recognizes that without knowing it, these pagan poets had touched on a truth that would not reach its completion and fulfillment until Christ in the New Testament. And really, that, that is the, and that's why a lot of times if you go to a school that's classical and Christian, it may very well have the name Mars Hill, because that's Areopagus is the Greek, Mars Hill is the Latin. And it's a reference to how on Mars Hill, Paul made a bridge between the pagan and Christian, saying that there are truths here. They, they didn't even know what they were doing. The best way, we, we've talked about this for an hour, so I'll just put it in a nutshell. All Christians believe that Christ fulfilled all the law and prophets of the Old Testament. I would argue, along with Lewis and so many others, Chesterton and others, that Christ not only fulfilled the Jewish law and prophets, prophets he fulfilled all the highest yearnings of the pagan people. As Lewis himself said in Mere Christianity, before the coming of Christ, God spoke in three ways. He spoke through a certain people called the Jews that he chose. He spoke through our conscience and, he, and through creation. But he also spoke, Lewis says, through the good dreams of the pagans. And when I write a book like From Achilles to Christ or Heaven and Hell and spend so much time in the pagans, it's because I want to look and peer into those good dreams of the pagans and see how God used these pagan writers to prepare the pagan pre-Christian world for the coming of Christ, the Messiah, not just of the Jews, but of the whole world. So it, it, it's a big vision here, and, and it's one that, that, that C.S. Lewis shared, and Tolkien, and Chesterton, and Milton, and Erasmus, and Augustine, and, and, and so many of them uh, were, were part, and, and Boethius, of course, that, that you know, we, we study these things, and we study them, and we see that they're beautiful in and of themselves, but there's also a deeper truth there that's waiting. Now, what am I saying here? I'm not saying that Plato or any of these people knew they were writing pre-Christian stuff, but I would suggest that if we could bring them into the Christian age and show them the fuller truth, their response would be, wow. I never would have guessed that, but now that I see it, I recognize that that's what I was reaching towards, sort of like the Magi who followed a star and it led them to the Christ child. And when they got there, only when they got there, did they recognize that this was the end of their long, long journey. Right, so it's exciting, man, when I go back. And you know, I'm hoping that there are people like me in, say, China, who are looking for these seeds of truth and someone like uh, like like Buddha or, or Confucius or something, right? Uh, that we, we can find, even as some people have read the famous Hymn to the Sun by Akhenaten, an ancient Egyptian pharaoh that seemed to have a perception uh, of truth. He didn't know the whole truth because he didn't have the Bible, but there was like a perception. And so we go out there and we look for those bits of truth scattered throughout the ancient world all pointing forward to Christ. Because, you know, it's not like God ignored 99% of the human population before Jesus came, but only to the Jews did he speak in what we call special revelation. Only to them did he speak directly. To the rest of the world, he spoke through creation, that's Romans 1, through conscience, that's Romans 2, and again, Lewis's good dreams of the pagans through our desires and our yearnings. 
that if we follow them to the end, we'll be like Emmeth at the end of the last battle, who recognizes that Aslan is the true God, and the one he worshipped was the false God. How's that for a big answer, Dave? That's a great answer. <laughs> okay, so I should tell you about my book. So anyway, I enjoy doing that. So what I felt like after doing From Achilles to Christ, that let's do a similar book, but one focused more thematically. And of course, the theme is heaven and hell. And again, even though there is theology and philosophy in the book, I wanted to come at it through that literary lens, like my hero. It's not really a book about C.S. Lewis, but it's inspired by C.S. Lewis in that sense, his vision. Uh, and so in the beginning, I do talk about Sheol, but in the Old Testament, but I compare it to the, the Greek idea of, of, of uh, Hades. And again, I'm looking a little more literary. Uh, then I look at the first great story, and that's, and that's the Odyssey. I mean, there are stories of Orpheus and Hercules and others, but the first full treatment of a descent into the underworld is the Odyssey. And so I, I devote a, you know, a chapter to the Odysseus, book, book nine of the Odyssey. Then a lot of people don't realize that a lot of our vision, a lot of the Western vision of heaven and hell, comes out of Plato. So I actually devote two lectures to Plato's geography of hell and to Plato's sort of theology and philosophy of hell and his myths. Um, then I could move on to the Aeneid. I also talk about Cicero, who gave us a vision. Uh, and, and, but the, the, the heart of the book, about a third of the book, is Dante. Because Dante is the one who draws together all the best of the pagan images mixes it together with the special revelation of the Bible and of Christ, and he gives us his incredible work, the divine comedy, that draws together the full Christian truth with the best of Greco-Roman learning. I mean, in a sense, the divine comedy is to literature what the Sistine Chapel is to art. <laughs> because if you look carefully at the Sistine Chapel, uh, down the center, down the spine, are nine great frescoes that are about the creation and fall and about Noah and the ark. And it's interesting that, that, um, that Michelangelo chose to focus on that because all of those stories take place before Abraham. So those are almost stories of general revelation. Those are stories of God working with the entire world until in, in uh, Genesis 11, he narrows in and focuses on Abraham, right? So we've done that. And then most people know that around those frescoes are these giant frescoes of the prophets, all of whom prophesied Christ. So Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel are there. But interspersed in between these great Hebrew prophets are the sibyls and oracles of ancient Greece and Rome. Mm -hmm. They are the uh, pagan oracles, because in their own way, they also spoke forth. So what Michelangelo is doing on the ceiling, of course, after Dante, Dante before him is already doing his work, and he's bringing it all together. Now, he does that for the Catholics of the world, and then along comes Milton, who's probably a little bit jealous uh, <laughs> that this Catholic and Italian guy, so he's like, I'm going to do for the Protestant British folks <laughs> what Dante did uh, for the Italian Catholics. And it's really weird, but if you read Dante's, uh, if you read Milton's Paradise Lost carefully, there are no direct references to Dante. Now, people say, well, that's impossible. Well, of course there are a lot of overlaps with Dante because they're all imitating the same stuff. That's like, you probably know that Tolkien got very, very mad at anybody who said that his Lord of the Rings was somehow an imitation of Wagner's ring cycle. Mm -hmm. He hated Wagner's ring cycle, unlike Lewis, who loved it, and I love it too. Tolkien hated it. And people 
want to laugh at Tolkien and say, well, of course he's lying, right? I mean, anybody can see all the links between the ring cycle and, uh, and the Lord of the Rings until you sit them down and say, wait a minute, of course there are overlaps because both Tolkien and Wagner are both borrowing from the same original sources. The Eddas and the Kalevala and the Nibelungen and the Volsung Saga, they're all coming from the same stuff. That's kind of what, what Milton does. He goes back to the original stuff, and he gives it to us from a more Protestant point of view. Right? Um, and then, of course, so all of that I'm sort of setting up and then finally, you know, we, we take the real break. And, you know, Lewis had this famous phrase, the statement. He said, the Renaissance never happened. And what he meant by that is we all have this idea that's been built, you know, it's been beaten into all of us that everything changed at the Renaissance. So somebody woke up on the morning of whatever, 1500 and said, <laughs> hey, I'm an individual. Hey, you know, well, no, no. The real change in European culture does not happen at the Renaissance. It happens at the Enlightenment. And Lewis has argued that you could take any Renaissance man, whether it's Galileo or, or Luther or, or any of these folks, they have Shakespeare, Cervantes, any of them has much more in common with a medieval or a higher pagan like Plato or Aristotle than any of them have in common with Marx or Freud or Darwin or Nietzsche or Saussure or any of these guys, uh, Sartre, any of them. So, again... Even though Milton is the, is the end of the Renaissance, the Renaissance sort of ends with, with Milton, we're still in a world that's not vastly different from this Judeo-Christian, Greco-Roman fusion that happened in the Middle Ages. But once we start moving into the Renaissance, into the Enlightenment, into the Romantic era, now we're really moving into a new world. And that's when we come upon Blake that you mentioned. And, you know, I teach Blake. I love Blake. <laughs> Whether we always understand him, I don't know. Even Lewis said that. I'm not even sure I understand him, but anyway. I couldn't agree with that bit more. <laughs> in, in preparing to do this season on The Great Divorce, I really tried to dig into the marriage of heaven and hell and try and understand what Blake was saying. <laughs> it's crazy. I, I still don't know. I I've, I've heard different lectures who say very different things about what he was doing. So... As you say, things take a slightly odd turn around the Romantics. Can you tell us what happened, what were they responding to, and what was Blake really trying to say? Well, well, first of all, we've got we to realize, I, I love the Romantics and stuff, and I'm, I'm of the occasion that I don't know what happened. I think it's very possible that, that Shelley you know, might have become a Christian. He just died too young. He was like he's not quite 30 years old when he died. Keats wasn't even 20, he was like 25 when he died. Even even uh, Lord Byron was about 36 when he died. Who knows what these people would have believed if they grew up? I, I think Shelley, the craziest of them, was actually moving in the direction of Christianity. The last thing he wrote was a, his own version of the, uh, of the Divine Comedy. It was called The Triumph of Life. Um, but what happened, one of the things that, that drove Lewis crazy, but one of the things that happened is, now the, the romant, Romanticism is born out of the French Revolution. And when the Romantics, the British now specifically, went back and reread Milton, because romantic people, romantic poets are people who skip over the Enlightenment and go back to the Renaissance. So they just pretend like Dryden and Pope never lived, and they go right back to Milton. <laughs> you know, basically, the entire uh, Romantic Age comes out of Paradise Lost and Hamlet. That's all you need to understand the Romantic Age. But when they went back and read Paradise Lost, they had what they saw as a, you know, as a moment of enlightenment, of clarification. They said, oh my gosh, the real hero of that book is Satan, right? 
Look at all of his energy. Look at his willingness to risk all to, to fight for what he believed. And he's a revolutionary, right? That God, he's, he's too static. He's up there in heaven, removed from everything, pushing everybody around like puppets. We're not interested in him. The real energy is with Milton. And that's what Blake said, that Milton was of the devil's party without knowing it. <laughs> that's why whenever he wrote about Satan, it was all exciting and whatnot. And whenever he wrote about God, it was boring. Now, that's not true, and maybe we'll come back next week and, 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 and explain why. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Preface to Paradise Lost to try to defend Milton from all of this. But anyway, what, what happened was with the Romantics, especially Shelley and Blake, the most extreme of them, they, they looked at this and they came to believe that energy was a good thing, but that energy was being repressed not only by Enlightenment thinking, right, Newton and all that stuff, the, you know, the clockwork universe of Newton, but it was also being repressed in many ways by, by religion itself, uh, was, was repressing that energy, uh, basically what Nietzsche would say 100 years later, religion as a slave ethic. So along comes Blake, and he writes this crazy, sui generis, so there's nothing like it, it's of its own genre, called The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, and he wants to bring the two together and Basically, the thesis of that book, in a nutshell, is that heaven and hell are states of mind. There's a scene in there, he calls it a memorable fancy. There's a scene where a devil gets a hold of his friend, the angel, to take him on a tour of hell. They go on this weird journey back and forth, back and forth, and they go deep, deep down, and the angel looks around, and he sees these horrific images of giant spiders swimming in the deep and devouring people, and it's absolutely terrifying. And the moment the angel leaves, then suddenly everything changes, and it looks like a little garden by a pond, and someone's in a swing, and someone's singing. And it's like, what's going on? Well, it turns out that the reason that we saw all the horrific images is because we were seeing it at first through the eyes of the angel who has repressed his energy and repressed his joy and exuberance and has bought in <laughs> to whatever God's propaganda, if you will. It's kind of an odd, odd book. But the idea is that once it's got, there's a famous line in Marriage of Heaven and Hell that sums it up. It says, if the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear as it is infinite. My students tell me that that's where the rock group, The Doors, got their name from, apparently, is from that quote from, from Blake. Um, whether they read Blake, I don't know. Um, <laughs> that's apparently where they got it from. There's, there's lots of preachers who quote things, but they've never actually read them. They just saw the quote in the book, right? Um, but anyway, it's this idea that heaven and hell is all about perception, right? And this in itself is a sort of a Gnostic idea, and give a whole history of religion here, but basically... For Christianity, right, the, the God created the world, and then we fell, right? And we, we need to be brought back into a right relationship like with God through salvation, through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Well, according to the Gnostics, the problem, what's keeping us away from God, is not sin. That's why they don't need a, a dying and rising God, because the problem is not sin. The problem is faulty perception. We're not seeing the world rightly. This is almost kind of Buddhist. When you think of the Buddhist up in Tibet meditating for uh, decades to have a moment of enlightenment, right? That's what the word Buddha means, an enlightened one, who suddenly sees that you know the whole world is an illusion. You just have to see through it, right? Well, 
that's kind of cool, but that's not Christianity, right? The world is real, right? Uh, now, Lewis argues that in a sense, hell is a state of mind because hell is, we, we have so rejected God, we've chosen disobedience, we've turned away from grace, we've turned inward on ourselves, nurturing ourselves, our pride, our sin, our disobedience, and we turn inward on ourselves. And in that sense, hell is almost a state of mind. It's real, but it's almost a state of mind because it's a turning in of the self. But heaven is the complete opposite. Heaven is reality itself. Now, the reason Lewis titled his book The Great Divorce, and by the way, this is my favorite of all C.S. Lewis's books, if I have to choose one, it is The Great Divorce. That's true for all right-thinking people, in my opinion. Thank you. It really is. I mean, who has the, the chutzpah to take the entire Divine Comedy and boil it down to 100 pages? <laughs> unbelievable. But that's what he's done. Everything. Not to mention all of Plato's myths and everything's in there. It's, it's unbelievable. The, the, the psychological depth of that book. By the way, Lewis says that if, if Blake announced the marriage of heaven and hell, he's going to announce their divorce. Because, see, Lewis says, I mean, he could have written this today. It's unbelievable. The modern world likes to think of everything like a pool, where everything is slowly coming together. We have this sort of relativistic idea that everything is true and everything's right, whatever, and just everything flows together and, and everything, we can, we can have it all, as they say. You know, you know those people who say, I don't like either or, I like both and, I want it all. Unfortunately, a lot of people that say that are preachers, but we will go there. But, but we just think that everything comes together. Lewis says that's not the way reality works. Reality, he says in the introduction, is more like a tree. It keeps branching and branching and branching. There is going to be an ultimate either or. And if we choose to go to heaven, we won't be able to carry even the smallest souvenir from hell, he says. There does have to be a choice. We don't just slide into salvation. There's got to be a choice. We, we, we come to a fork in the road, and we need to choose, right? Lewis says, if you're walking through the woods and you discover that you're lost, you don't keep walking. <laughs> you go back to where you started and find the right road again. But we just think we just keep moving on and on and on and on. We'll figure it out as we, as we make it up as we go along, like Indiana Jones or something. But no, you have to go back and find the fork and take the right fork. So the marriage of heaven and hell, which is, this must have just come to Lewis in, in a moment of incredible enlightenment. I mean, it's, it's based on an old medieval idea he calls the refrigerium that apparently the, pe the damned get to go on holidays. That, that's where Lewis got the seed, but it's really his idea. He said, what if the people in hell, if they so chose, could get on a bus and take the bus to heaven? And when they get to heaven, or really it's the sort of plane in front of heaven, when they get there, they're met by the souls of the saints, saved people that they knew when they were on earth, friends, relatives, whatever. And what if those saints could share with them the gospel and try to convince them even now to give up their sin, their selfishness, their pride, their disobedience, and accept God's love and grace and mercy. What would they do? And in a moment of brilliant psychological insight, Lewis shows us that every single person except one willingly chooses to go back to hell. You know, whenever people would ask uh, Richard Dawkins, well, what, what would you say to God uh, if you saw him at the end on your deathbed. And he said, I would say the same thing David Hume would say. Sir, you should have made things more clear. Well, <laughs> Lewis shows that it's not a matter of clear or unclear, okay? I mean, we're, we're like the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees watched Jesus 
feel a blind man right in front of them. And all they could say was, excuse me, I think it's the Sabbath, right? In other words, it's got, it's got nothing to do with lack of knowledge, right? What if they did have the knowledge? Lewis shows that even if they have the knowledge, even if they've been to hell and they see heaven, they still choose to go back on the train to Detroit. Can you imagine that? <laughs> it's unbelievable. They still go back. Um, and Lewis w- wants to show us the nature of the choice. And the nature of the choice is, do we move out of ourselves towards God, towards truth and goodness and beauty and reality? Or do we turn inwards upon ourselves? On All of it's summed up by one thing. Okay, if anybody's ever read a psychology book, most psychology books fall into what's called the case study approach. So each chapter will give you you know, an actual case of a patient, you know, they change the name, and that case, that patient will sort of sum up a certain kind of phobia or neurosis or something. Well, Lewis has that case study approach. We, we get to meet about a dozen sinners, and each one of them represents a different kind of sort of twitch that, that keeps us away from God. And what happens is that Lewis overhears these conversations between the damned soul and the saved soul. And he hears one right in the middle of the book that explains everything. As he listens, he sees the soul of a garrulous, complaining old woman, right? And she's met by one of her friends, and they talk. But they don't really talk because you see this woman goes on and on, complaining and complaining and moaning and groaning. So the poor saint can't get a word in edgewise. She's gone on like a broken record. Until finally, Lewis turns to his guide, uh, George MacDonald, his version of Virgil, and he says, Sir, I, I don't understand. This woman doesn't seem so bad. I mean, she's just a grumbler. Is, is that worthy of her being down in that terrible place? And George MacDonald in his Scottish brogue says, Ah, that's the real question. Is she a grumbler or is she only a grumble?" If there's one spark of humanity left in that woman, the angels can blow on it till it becomes a raging fire. But if all that's left is ashes, we'll not go on blowing ashes in our face forever. You see, the trouble with that woman and all the people in the great divorce, the problem is not that they're beyond salvation. God's grace is a powerful thing. The problem is there's nothing left to save through repeated sin, repeated selfishness, repeated pride, they have given away their humanity drop by drop until there's nothing left. Right? And, and, and it's sad, but it's a process that begins on this earth. We've all met people that, you know, they're, they're, let's say they're angry at somebody. And whenever you get angry at somebody, you become two people. You become the you that's really angry, and you become the real you who's trying to calm down the angry you to get him to let it go, right? And what happens is there's a dialogue between two parts of yourself. And that dialogue will continue. But if you continue to nurse that anger and feed it and feed it, sooner or later, the real you will be gone. And all that will be left is the anger, the grudge, the bitterness going on forever like a broken record. You'll have to explain that to your young audience, what a record is. <laughs> Although, they're going back, did you notice? In America, at least, they're going back to vinyl. It's like this big thing. Oh, records are very cool. 
Yeah, it's really exciting stuff. I got to let you talk. I'm talking so much. You see, I'm excited by this book. <laughs> no, no, no. This is this is all good stuff. I've heard you speak before. It's like I'm just gonna let him talk. I'm just gonna. Sit. <laughs> That's great. I'm just gonna give him a subject and let it, let him go for it. <laughs> uh, but your point about the degradation—it's almost like they they lose their humanity progressively, and they lose anything that's almost worth saving. Whenever I read Jesus and the Pharisees, the real issue is the fact that the Pharisees think that they see. They think they're in right relationship with God. Mm. And that makes them so blind to see where that falls short. It, it's all summed up. You know, I mean, John, the gospel of John is, is the gospel of irony, very heavy irony. And I think it's John chapter 9, which is a story when Jesus heals a man born blind. And it all leads up to that final verse when, you know, they, 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 the Pharisees say, are you saying we're blind? And Jesus says to them, basically, if you, were re- if you really were blind, you would be without fault. But because you say, we see, your fault remains. I mean, w- when you read that story in John chapter 9, as the blind man sees more and more and more, the Pharisees who claim they see become more and more and more blind. And it, it, it is, it, it's really an insidious process. See, one of the things I learned from Lewis is, instead of thinking of hell as a sort of marsh or a swamp that we're tossed into because of one big heinous sin, I think hell is more like a, a swamp that we sink into one little sin at a time. I mean, Lewis talks about this in Mere Christianity. We're always on this continuum back and forth with every, every time we yield to God, we are growing into what we were meant to be. But every time we reject that, we are losing that. We're, we're always back and forth on that continuum. And see, I, I love screw tape letters, right? And screw tape letters, yes, you can give it to a friend who's a non-believer. But in some ways, Lewis wrote that book for good church people. Because when you read screw tape letters, you'll notice that screw tape, it's a senior devil writing to a junior devil, teaching him how to tempt people. And it uses a lot of irony and satire. And you'll notice that in that book, Lewis never deals with, quote, big sin. There's, there's nothing about murder, adultery, grand theft, or something like that. They're all a bunch of little sins. But what Lewis says, what, what Screwtape, the, the senior devil, tries to explain to his nephew Wormwood, he says, the size of the sin doesn't matter, Wormwood. The only thing that matters is the degree to which you edge your patient, the guy you're tempting, edge the patient out of the light and into the darkness outside. Murder is no better than cards, if cards will do. In fact, it's better to use the small tins. And then he explains it to him. No, Wormwood, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. You see how slow and insidious it is? Bit by bit, drip by drip, until it's all gone, right? I mean, we, we have to understand that we're, we're dealing with real stuff here, real issues, real choices, real decisions, because our decisions don't just have consequences. Our decisions and choices shape us into certain kinds of people, right? Hell is a process. It's not just somewhere we go. It's something that we become. 
so that the people in hell don't want to be in heaven, right? Because they don't want to be exposed. They just want to cower in the corner. And this can happen to any of us. And it happens so slowly, we don't even notice it. Man, see, you know, especially if you grow up in a real strict uh, Christian home, um, sometimes we have this idea that when God looks down from heaven and he looks down upon us, the first thing he sees is our sin and depravity, and it just disgusts him. He wants to hold his nose. I think that's the kind of house that George McDonald seemed to have grown up in, extremely Calvinist home. You know, God looks down, depravity, ah, I don't think so. I think when God looks down from above, I think the first thing he sees is that spark of humanity he breathed into us in the beginning. And then he sees the layers of sin and depravity trying to crush and snuff out that light. And God wants to blow on that spark till it becomes a raging fire. That's the desire. And, and again, I just love it because Lewis shows us that the place of real life and real joy and real solidity, that's heaven, not hell. I mean, you notice how in our world today, but both in America and Europe, all over the place, whenever we talk about heaven or God, we always use negative language. Lewis talks about this in his book, Miracles. Uh, he says, right, we say that, that the earth is physical and heaven is non-physical, or, or we're corporeal and God is non-corporeal. God is not non-corporeal. God is transcorporeal. God's not impersonal. He's transpersonal. Heaven is not non-physical. It's transphysical. It's more real and more solid and more actual than the earth. And Lewis comes up with this great idea that heaven is so real and the sinners are so desiccated and, and gone that when they walk in heaven, they cannot even bend the grass under their feet. It feels like needles to them because they are so insubstantial compared to the thundering reality of heaven, they can't bend the grass. You've probably heard people that have this idea that the problem with us is our desires are too strong for heaven. No, it's completely wrong. The problem with our desires is that they're too weak for heaven, right? Oh my gosh, we have this idea that Jesus is like some old school mom. Oh, oh, lust, that bothers me. The problem with lust is not that it's too strong for heaven. The trouble with lust is it's such a weak, paltry nothingness compared to the thundering joy and power of heaven. Heaven is more than, not less than. You all in England have been so blessed by N.T. Wright, uh, because my understanding is things are even worse in England than they are in America on heaven, right? I can't tell you how many Americans and maybe more Europeans have the idea that when we die, we become angels. <laughs> now, one of my very favorite movies of all time is It's a Wonderful Life by Frank Capra. Unfortunately, that propounded this ludicrous myth that when we die, we become angels, right? We don't become angels are a totally different creation, right? In heaven, we are going to have resurrection bodies, just like Jesus does, except ours won't have any scars. There won't be any stigmata. But again, heaven is not less. Heaven is not the earth with all the stuff thrown at, which I think a lot of people believe, whether they know it or not. Heaven is more real, more substantial, more actual. And that's one of the things that Lewis shows us in The Great Divorce. 
And it is, I mean, I love Blake, but when you read The Great Divorce, it's like a breath of fresh air and reality and sanity. And we're moving into, into something that is, again, more good, more true, more beautiful. So whoever's listening, if you ever read The, if you ever read the Great Divorce, you have to read it. You should read it every year, as I do, because it's so full of insight and so full of truth, not only theological, but psychological. Absolutely. Listeners will know. I'm actually going to push back on just one little thing you said there. You suggested that when we're in heaven, we won't have scars. I actually think that we will. Really? Explain. Maybe. A while back, I listened to a Casting Crowns song, and that was one of the lyrics in there when they said that the, the hand that bears the only scars would gently wipe her face. Her meaning the church. Oh, I thought to myself, right. would that be true? I don't think so. Because if we're the body, we should be imitating the head. And in the same way that the head's scars are glorious and means and life-giving, surely it'd be the same in the body. Maybe. That's an interesting point. I'm trying to think. Have you come upon any verses that would suggest that? I think where I'd point to would be in the passages where St. Paul speaks about making up in his own body what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Because... It's not that anything was lacking per se in Christ's sacrifice. It was the sacrifice of infinite value. Right. But the only thing that's lacking is our participation in it and Christ coming to live in us. Well, it's true. Okay. One of the things I love about Lewis is he doesn't use the word, but he talks about theosis. Right. Oh, it's beautiful. God became like us so we could become like him. Exactly. Moralism is just teaching corpses to behave, but Jesus didn't come for that. He came to make dead men living. Wow. I mean, it is interesting, and you probably know that Lewis, you know, did kind of toy with the idea of purgatory towards the end of his life. He was moving in that direction, but he had this wonderful way of describing it. He says, at the end of Screwtape, letter 31, he says, pains there may still be, but they will embrace those pains. So that if, if, if there are pains in heaven, they will be embraced and glorious. If there are pleasures in hell, they will be horrible pleasures that will drag us away. So maybe, I mean, maybe you're also thinking about how Paul talks about that he wants to be one with Christ in the crucifixion, that he might also rise with him as well. Mm. So we, we, we die with him and we rise with him. That, that's why particularly I'm at a Baptist church and we always like to do baptism by immersion, right, rather than mm-hmm. sprinkling, because they really like that imagery of, you know, literally dying with Christ, of going under the water and coming back up. So that's possible. And that, that, hmm. I like that idea. Maybe a few broken noses up there. <laughs> <laughs> and your point about uh, pain, Lewis says something very similar in Letters to Malcolm oh, yeah. when he's talking about purgatory. He compares it to washing your mouth out after you've been to the dentist, You know, an activity he clearly hated. Yeah, he always says terrible things about the dentist. Oh, absolutely. Matt and I keep saying we should have started a counter when we began this podcast for the number of times he mentions it. <laughs> but, but he says that... That it might be fiery and astringent, but he says, if there's any pain, it will not be disgusting or unhallowed. Right. Because in heaven, everything is redeemed. God, it, it, I mean, and, and, and you know, what you're saying there is so important because for a while now, even, even since I was younger, people did talk about creation, fall, and redemption. But I'm glad that over the last, oh, I don't know, 25, 30 years, we now say creation, fall, redemption, and, recon- or, or, and restoration. In other words, it, it's, we're, we're not just saved and redeemed, but everything is restored, right? That, that one, one line I like that, you know, even what, the, even what the locusts have devoured will be restored. 
that everything will be restored and perfected, that there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, and, and, uh, wow. But that, I mean, it does say that he'll, you know, he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Mm-hmm. Uh, there'll be no more crying and no more dying there. But, uh, I don't know. Will we bear, will we bear our scars as, as, as marks, but now marks of glory? Exactly. Maybe, maybe you're thinking like the 144,000, uh, with the robes, right? Who's, uh, it's interesting. I do like that. It's very manly, Lewis would say. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> it was a small point that you raised, but uh, listeners will know that I've had this little rant before, and so I would I would have to have to bring it up. <laughs> That's great stuff, man. One last thing before we wrap up the the Great Divorce, and I have one other question that I would like to ask you. But why is it, do you think, that the ghost with the lizard? He's the only person in the entire book who submits and is transformed and goes on up to the mountains. Why is he the only one? Or put another way, what would Lewis tell us? What would his, his advice be to make sure that we are a ghost who is willing to go through that process rather than those foolish ghosts who go back to the gray town? I'll tell you, one of the things, one of the most important things I learned from Lewis, and it's right there in the Gospels, but Lewis explained to me that it is more often the good things that keep us away from God than the bad things. Now, what does he mean? Okay, if you're st- if you're caught up in a quote bad thing, whatever, uh, um, you know, serial adultery, uh, addiction to alcohol, addiction to drugs, whatever. If you're caught up in something unseemly like that, most people are going to realize, you know, this is not what I was created for. There has got to be a life better than this. I mean, you, you're going to see that there's something wretched about this. Now, you may not leave that life, but at least there'll be some moment when you realize, no, I was meant for more. But what about the good things? Mother love, patriotism, the arts, religion itself. All of those things are good, but they're so good that they make very effective substitutes. As Lewis says, Brass is more often mistaken for gold than clay is, right? And Lewis is getting that right out of one verse of the Bible. Jesus says that it's not the, it's those who are sick that need a doctor, not those who are well. That's why the, the tax collectors and the prostitutes come to Jesus, but the Pharisees stay away, right? And in fact, the guy with the lizard is specifically contrasted with the woman who, who lived for the memory of her dead son, probably the most difficult part of that whole book, right? Her mother love is such a powerful thing but it's gone sour. And the higher up something is, the lower down it falls. Remember, Satan was not a petty crook who made it big. He was an archangel who fell. The higher up, the farther down you go. Now, this, this young man, okay, he, he, to me, it is very clear to me that his sin is sexual, but not sleeping around. I, to me, I'm, I'm convinced it's basically pornography and masturbation. I think, in other words, I think it's just something really kind of icky, right? Mm-hmm. He, he's very embarrassed by it. Yeah, embarrassed. I know this, this is not even, uh, what's his name, uh, you know, like uh, Don Juan or somebody like that, running around mm-hmm. sleeping with lots of different women. I don't even think it has that allure to it. It seems to be something shameful and secret, right? And, but because it's so shameful, sometimes you wake up and you realize it, right? You, you, you suddenly realize how horrible it is, how, you know, how, that, that, this, that this lizard is just keeping you in a sort of constantly dirty state. There's no joy, there's no, uh, no, no relish to it. 
oh, like it says in screw tape letters, right? That, that, oh, oh, I get so mad at the devil when he says that the devil's greatest joy is to get our soul and give us nothing in return. So we just waste away kicking our fingers, whistling tunes we don't even like, right? And just <laughs> slowly going. I mean, so we've got this young man who, who's trapped in this life, but does at least see the dirtiness of it and, and wants to, but doesn't know how. But it just takes the smallest opening. All right, do it. Just the smallest opening. And then the ability of God's grace to rush in. But it's very important we don't miss a very important line. Because after that young man turns into, you know, this, this great giant, and of course the lizard turns into this beautiful horse, this great stallion, right? Um, then Lewis says to, to, to the guy, George McDonald, you, you, you can't tell me that, that you know, his sin is, it becomes this, and, and look at that poor woman that loved her son. And George McDonald says, the question is, if basically lust, if low lust gives itself over to die, and it is reborn into something as glorious as this stallion, imagine if something like mother love gave itself over to death. Mm -hmm. What an incredibly powerful thing it would be. Right? So in other words, it, it, it would be much, much greater. But the trouble is, again, it's that good substitute. It won't give itself over. And so uh, Lewis wrote a book called The Four Loves. Love, when it becomes a god, becomes a demon. Take any earthly love, including something like mother love, and make that into your god, it will become a demon and, and break your heart and break your soul. Uh, so again, all this young man does is reach out and says, help, <laughs> please <laughs> do it. He still has to make the choice. And it's only a little bit of a peep but he is willing to move out of himself towards reality. He actually desires it. But again, it, it's strange. All the other ones, all the other people are so self-satisfied, so completely convinced in their self-righteousness that they just won't listen. This, this poor, pathetic young man will at least listen. He'll hear, and he's able to come out of it. it it's an amazing moment. And of course, it comes at the end after all the, but, oh, I mean, I mean, it, it almost brings you to tears. You know, a little bit before that, we meet the, the, the man, um, it's, it's this giant holding a little puppet on a chain. And it turns out that the real person is a little puppet guy and the big monster is the tragedian. This guy has always been so phony and, and you know, and, and, and kind of hurting his wife and stuff like that. And, you know, there's this moment where the woman is reaching out to him to just give up all of his phoniness and his, his, his you know, his smugness and his self-satisfaction and his pride and all of that stuff, and we give it up. And Lewis talks about how painful it was to watch this man on the threshold between joy and misery. And then at the last moment, he closes up and... I mean, I'll always remember, I was sharing with my students, I've been teaching at Houston Baptist for 28 years now, and I do a Bible study at my house, and I still remember, at least 20 years ago, uh, that after everybody left, there was one girl that stayed, and she was asking me some more questions, and she wasn't a believer, and I remember she was sitting in the chair in my den, and, and we were talking, and, and, and I said something, and finally, I could see the light in her eyes, just for a moment, a sort of desire, and then I'll never forget, she said, um, i got to go to the bathroom. And she skirted into the bathroom, 
And when she came out like three or four minutes later, it, it was gone. Mm-hmm. Whatever she did, washed her face, smacked herself back. And I don't know whatever happened to her. It was a long time ago. But, you know, there are those moments, those, those, those crisis moments there when, when everything hangs in the balance. And Lewis is so good at explaining that. I don't know if you remember, but uh, screw tape, letter number one, the first screw tape letter, uh, must have been amazing when that first appeared in the magazine there to see that first letter. And screw tape <laughs> says, I once had a patient who was reading in the reading room of the British Library. I was thinking of this exact moment, yeah. <laughs> you remember that moment? It's just great. And, and he, you know, he's sitting there reading, and suddenly a thought comes to him. You know, what does it all mean, right? What, what does it all mean, this great literature? And, 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 and you know, uh, Screwtape saw everything was going against him. And he said to Wormwood, if I had been a young fool, I would have come back at him with a counterattack. But he says, I wasn't such a fool. I knew if I argued with him, that I would lose because reason is on the side of the enemy. That is God. So what he said instead was, I whispered in his ear, it was just about time for lunch. <laughs> and it said at the moment he left for lunch, he went outside, he saw the, 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 the number 10 uh, bus going by, he heard the, the, the street boy uh, peddling papers, and he said a good dose of real life, by which he meant the bus and the newspaper, made him think that any foolish ideas you might have in a library had nothing to do with reality, but this is real life. And again, he sucks him right back in. And it's such a shame because, again, coming so close and then being pulled back again. Nobody does that, that drama. I mean, that, that, that's, he doesn't like Dante. Nobody does that. The drama of, of choice, of hanging in the balance. And again, we're not just choosing God over ourselves. Are we going to choose reality? Are we going to choose joy? truth, all of that stuff, or are we going to go back and hide in the shadows? And the choice is always there before us, powerfully so. Only, again, Lewis makes that choice so real, uh, and, he, and he does it in his Narnia books everywhere. Uh, he shows us, that, and one of my favorite Greek words is psychomachia. That means a soul war, that war in your soul, like the old-fashioned devil and angel on your shoulders. It's, it's that moment of choice when everything comes to a head, that's, that's, where, that's where we're formed into people, by a series of choices. We're not talking about work salvation here. Salvation is by grace, but are we going to step into that grace, or are we going to perpetually shield ourselves from it? Hey, we've got we've to be careful that we don't become so self-protective that we hold off. Oh, ye sons of Adam's how hard you work against everything that will do you good. That's a line from the magician's nephew. Uh, we barricade our heart against it. And sooner or later, we become deaf. Right? God keeps banging on the door, but we've built up such a barricade that we can't hear it anymore. Amazing stuff. And we've become too easily pleased with the small things that we have. <laughs> yes. with, a, with a child who wants to play in the mud because he couldn't even comprehend what it would be like to have a That's holiday right. at the seaside. We are, too, we are far too easily pleased. The weight of glory. <laughs> Do you know, I got to hear, uh, there's a thing called Oxbridge. I don't know if you've ever been able to go to it. Every three years, the C.S. Lewis Foundation, it's an American group, goes out to Oxford, a week in Oxford, a week in Cambridge, and they bring everybody out there, and I've spoken a few times, and I don't know, have you ever seen the original Shadowland, the BBC TV version with Joss Ackland? I have indeed. Oh, it was great. Well, when I was there, 
I think it's almost 12 years ago, we got to see Joss Ackman actually recite Lewis's Weight of Glory. Oh, cool. Went up in the pulpit and recited it. Then when I went again about four years ago, they got Max McLean, who was a great uh, orator. <laughs> and, and Max McLean actually memorized it. And he went to uh, St. Mary of the Virgin, which is the place where Lewis originally gave it. Uh, the pulpit's like up in the air. And he actually didn't read it like Joss. He actually dramatically presented it. And it was one of the most amazing, I don't even know if they got it on tape, it was the most amazing thing to hear him do that. So <laughs> just, just, just great stuff. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time. But as I said, I have one more question. Sure. Uh, I really want to help people out there. And there is, some people have made some bad choices. I know that you are completely orthodox on this. So I would just like you to share with the listeners, why should the Chronicles of Narnia always be initially read in publication order? Oh my God. So let me just start by saying that the new ordering of the Narnia books is the single worst publishing decision since Gutenberg. Let's just make that very clear. <laughs> I have no idea why this was allowed. It's insane. Okay, first of all, we should just read it in the original order of publication. That's kind of obvious. But let's just get a few reasons. First of all, if you read The Magician's Nephew first, you lose all the fun of recognition that you would get if you read it sixth, as it normally was written and published. I mean, but more important, just, just to put this in real simple terms, let's say you had a friend who became a believer at, say, the age of 30, right? And so he had very little knowledge of the Bible, didn't grow up in church, and he said, I'm a believer now, I want to read the Bible, what should I do? Would you tell him to pick up the book at Genesis and read it from beginning to end? You wouldn't do that. You would tell him, start by reading the Gospels. Pick up the Gospel of Mark, pick up the Gospel of John. And the way, we, the way we begin Narnia is with the gospel story of Narnia. Also, it's just kind of obvious, think about it, that in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, we, we ease our way into Narnia. First, Lucy goes by herself and comes back. Then Lucy and Edmund go and come back. And then all four children go. So we're, we're, we're naturally eased into that. Whereas, I mean, look, if, if you read The Magician's Nephew, when we meet Aslan the first time when he's singing Narnia into being, it's very clear that Lewis expects us to recognize who this guy is. But of course you don't. And when you read the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe second, and you get to that part that says, when Mr. Beaver said, Aslan is on the move, and it says, now the children had no idea who Aslan was any more than you do, unless you've already read The Magician's Nephew, <laughs> right? And that kind of ruins the whole thing, right? And I also spoke to some people who read it in the wrong order, and they said, okay, they, they read the, 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 the magician's nephew and lost all the joy of recognition. Then they read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and then they were all ready to learn more about Narnia Diggin, but then the new order throws you down into Kalorman for the horse in this boy. So, you know, again, you, you, I mean, you need to go from Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to Prince Caspian. And then, of course, Prince Caspian, Dawn Treader, and Silver Chair make up almost a little trilogy all based around Caspian, young, a little older, and very old. Uh, and then you move in, and you get to read Magician's Nephew and Last Battle back-to-back. -back. You're actually reading Genesis and Revelation, the beginning and the end, back-to-back. -back. Uh, so, I mean, now, if you look at the book, it will say that these are, are put in the order that Lewis wanted. Now, this is really a lie, Okay. Lewis answered all the letters that were sent to him. It's an unbelievable guy. And he even answered letters from children. 
And one child wrote him a letter saying, wouldn't it be interesting to read the Chronicles of Narnia in the order of Narnian chronology? And Lewis wrote back, now that would be interesting. Okay, now look, I'm a professor, and any teacher knows what's going on here. I don't care what <laughs> age you teach, right? You're teaching whatever age it is, and a student raises their hand and says something stupid. Now, you don't answer back and say, young man, that was the dumbest comment I've ever heard in my life. You say, well, you could say that with the implication, if you were an idiot. Okay, but you don't, you don't put that part in, right? I mean, he's just humoring the boy. I mean, yeah. I mean, once you've read all the Narnia Chronicles once, I guess you can go back and read them in whatever order you want. Um, but, um, I mean, let's put it this way. If, if you met somebody that never heard of Star Wars, would you, and they wanted to watch the movies, would you tell them to start with episode one and go forward? That would be ludicrous. Episodes one through three don't exist in my world. Oh, it's so bad. It really is sad. It's so sad. <laughs> I don't know what, what happened. I mean, you know, finally, with episode one, two, and three, George Lucas is just putting people in front of a blue screen or green screen and telling them to open their mouth, and then he, everything else is thrown in afterwards. So sad. So sad. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it, it really is. And what's really upsetting to me is nowadays, if you buy a copy of the Chronicles of Narnia, the only way that you can figure out the original order is if you're really smart and you look at the copyright page and look at the original publication dates. Other than that, there is nowhere where it tells you what the original order was. You have to figure it out by looking at the dates, you know, 1950, 51, 52, all the way to 56. But they don't even tell you, and they say it was as if it was Lewis's. I mean, first of all, if Lewis wanted to change it, he would have had to go back and do some editing to make it work, uh, and he didn't do that. Uh, and he could have, you know, uh, he, he, he finished writing at 56. He lived another uh, seven years. So he, if he wanted to do some editing, he could have and changed it around. But again, I don't know why. It's, it's a shame. I mean, you know, I, I have my students when I teach the class, they, they buy the one volume book, but then I have them read it in the proper order. Please read it in the proper order, you know. And isn't it funny that when Hollywood comes along to make the movies, they do it in the right order. Isn't that interesting? It is. They were smart enough to realize that you have to start with the line, the witch in the wardrobe. This is our initiation into the world of Narnia. This is our gospel story, and everything moves from that. By the way, you know, one of my colleagues is Michael Ward, who wrote Planet Narnia. Mm -hmm. you got to get him on your show if he, if he hasn't been there yet. Oh, no. I, I, he's, he's definitely on my list. <laughs> he's, yeah, he's great. He's just great. And uh, I mean, there's always new surprises for us. Uh, with this, and of course, you, I'm, I'm sure you know that shortly after Amazon Prime bought the rights to Middle Earth, Netflix bought the rights to the Narnia, and so at some point they're going to start making. We still don't know it. They might be making both miniseries and movies. I hope they'll make a silver chair movie, because you know, Lion the Witch in the Wardrobe is not too hard to film, but then when you come to Prince Caspian. Modern Hollywood doesn't want to make a book that's got a four-chapter flashback mm -hmm. where we don't even meet Caspian. I mean, I understood why they changed everything, but that really messed up the plot. And then Voyage of the Dawn Treader is a wonderful read, but it's incredibly episodic for a movie. Yeah. And so they had to change it. But Silver Chair is, is like a perfect movie script. It's a quest narrative with a beginning, a middle, and an end. You can actually pretty much make Silver Chair in order because it's already in, in that archetypal quest narrative. And that's when they stop making movies. So I hope we'll get a, a, a good uh, silver chair, the magician's nephew, 
it's going to cost a fortune if they do that right. <laughs> oh my, that's, that is my favorite of the novels, by the way. I really do like Magician's Nephew if I have to choose one, but read in its proper order <laughs> so you can appreciate all the wonderful recognition when you get there. But, oh my. Yeah, it will be very interesting to see what they do because uh, despite the fact that I'm a diehard publication order only person, I'm actually somewhat sympathetic if they, when they do this Netflix thing, if they do reimagine it a little bit, make the relevant adjustments and then do it in chronological order. Just because I, what I wouldn't want them to do is to do Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe again, then do Prince Caspian again, then do Voyage of the Dawn Shredder again, and then we get to the Silver Chair. Yeah, I see what you mean, yeah. Oh, and I want them to do Horse in this Boy. Absolutely. Now that's my personal favorite. Yeah, is, is that your favorite Horse in this Boy? Yeah, I didn't like it as a as a child, and I think it's because it had girls in it. <laughs> you know, oh, about a boy uh, and a girl, and the girl's just annoying. Uh, she is but annoying. Reading it as an adult, easily my favorite. <laughs> it's funny how the, the kids become more annoying and crotchety as they go along. I mean, Polly and Diggory never stop, you know, going at each other. It's really kind of funny. And uh, <laughs> of course, the, the the horse in this boy has that wonderful ending where it says that. Uh, you know, because Shasta and Erevis were always fighting, they decided to get married so they could continue doing it. <laughs> Just in private, yeah. It, <laughs> well, it, it, the, I, I'm, sure, I'm sure many Narnian fan has been inspired by that one in their romantic it, relationships. Well, I mean, the real reason is that, you know, Lewis said himself he did not like stories that ended with, you know, kids running off together. He just didn't like that. But when it came to Erevis and Shasta, he had no choice. I mean, the, the, the archetype demands that those two get married. Uh, and notice that he, he he gets his own revenge, though, by not having Bree and um, Quinn get married. Mm-hmm. They only become friends, but they don't get married. And Polly and Diggory don't get married. And, uh, of course, in the movie Prince Caspian, uh, you know, it, it, uh. Susan had to have a crush on Caspian because <laughs> the movie aged the kids by five or six years. So yeah. by making them older, the audience would have not believed it if she didn't fall in love with this guy. The uh, I tell you, that actor was Ben Barnes. Yeah. You know, it's really a shame. Shortly after the movie, the British made a new movie version of Picture of Dorian Gray with Ben Barnes, but it just wasn't any good. I don't know why. It just was kind of wooden. Uh, it had a really good cast, but it just didn't go over too well. That's a shame. It's a great book. Yeah, it is. So if people want to get to know your material a little bit more, what books should they go to? Uh, do you have a website? That sort of thing. Really, the best way to get my stuff is to go to Amazon.com and type in my name, Louis Marcos, M-A-R-K-O-S. And all my books are on the Amazon webpage. And uh, I, of all the books I've published, the one that I think people have enjoyed the most as a starting place is called On the Shoulders of Hobbits, The Road to Virtue with Tolkien and Lewis. And that covers all the virtues and the vices. And each chapter takes something from one of the Narnia Chronicles and something from Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit or The Silmarillion and goes back and forth. So that's a good way to begin. And after that, um, I, I would say from Achilles to uh, Christ is very popular. And I've also got a book called Apologetics for the 21st Century uh, that's been very popular, and a new one called Atheism on Trial. The most exciting thing is next year, Classical Academic Press is going to come out with a new book I've just finished called The Myth-Made Fact, Reading Greek Mythology Through Christian Eyes. So it's going to be about Greek mythology, and I'm hoping University is going to come out with my new book, From Achilles to Christ, Ascending the Rising Path. We're still working on that one. Uh, but so I'm, I'm still keeping in with, with the classics and the pagan classics and basically what we can learn from this great Greco-Roman tradition and how we can take it up into the fuller truth of Christ. 
And that's, that's really where my passion is, I think. To go and to spoil the Egyptians and then write books about it. Exactly. That's exactly it. That's what I'm going to be talking about. You got to do it. Well, listeners, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter and Instagram at Pints with Jack. You can check out the website, restlesspilgrim.net and pintswithjack.com. And Matt and I will be back next week when we'll be going further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>